Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing? Welcome. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. It was my birthday this week, and I asked Aaron if he could do a Beatles song for my birthday, and he picked like their most depressing song. (laughs) We picked that song because it's actually perfectly on theme for us today. And, And don't you have that moment where you kind of go to clap, and you're like, wait, great performance, great job. You entered into the song. What lyrics am I clapping there exactly? It has that that's that sort of dirginess to the, the melody, and, and then there's this sort of heartbreak to the lyrics. They, they tap into this idea that we're talking about, this word crisis, and, and what the role of the church might be in a hurting world. One of the questions we're kind of asking is, does the crisis not affect the church just as much as everywhere else, and, and do we actually have anything left to say that might make a difference? We're kind of wrestling with some of those big questions. This is suspicion. Uh, I suspect that many of us feel not everything is right. Some of that is just simply as we get older, we expect life to be like it was when we were kids, and some of it is we just don't really remember what it was like when we were kids. I just turned 40, my memory's going quickly, and, and so some of it is just that sort of nostalgia. But some of it is a, a real observation and watching how people operate and saying, is that really uh, what we're supposed to do and operate like? Is that really what human existence looks like? Uh, I would feel it's maybe a little bit like when you watch a lion in the zoo. I, I got to go to the zoo with my kids and some other people's kids the other day. So it was literally that moment where you get everyone there and you're like, this is the circus meeting the zoo. This is all of our chaos and craziness Uh, and now we're at a zoo and apparently that's what Denver does on Saturday morning everybody goes to the zoo because it was packed with people Uh, and you get to watch animals that you just don't see here this is a lion for those of you that can't see the picture but but you watch these animals and you watch them exist now what is going on here according to the writer Alan Noble something very interesting is happening here we have a lion that is actually a real lion. It it is looked after by a group of people who know what is good for it. These people, there's a nutritionist that looks after its diet. There is a person that knows about geography and landscapes that tries to craft terrain that looks somewhat realistic for it. And yet we sense there's a problem, right, when we watch this lion. And, And there is a problem. There is a problem in that this lion is completely out of its comfort zone, completely out of its typical environment. Even if you can recreate some of the landscape, even if you can take some food and feed it, give it some nourishment, still that lion wakes up every day and it hears animals that live a thousand of, thousands of miles away from it. It wakes up every day to the smell of popcorn. It wakes up every day to the smell of hot dogs. It wakes up every day to kids screaming. It, it doesn't live like a normal lion lived, like this lion lived back when it was in the wild. And then what might happen? What might happen is this, is if it's not too depressed to mate, it might have another lion, and and that lion might have another lion, and eventually what we'll do is we'll take this lion and we'll put bread in captivity in front of it on the panel or whatever we do, the information sheet for this lion. And we'll say bread in captivity, and each of us, to almost 100% accuracy, 
Almost every single one of us will look at this new lion, this third generation lion, and we'll say, that's not a real lion. At least not in quite the way that the original lion was a lion. It's never lived a real lion life. It's possible that many of us live lives that are not real human lives. We just keep doing them over and over again without any certainty that we're living in any particularly healthy way. Somewhere this tension is what is expressed by this this first murderer in the Bible, Cain. He's killed his brother and he's now receiving a punishment and he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Somewhere he's saying, I'm going to be less human from today. I'm going to live this existence that isn't really worth living. Last week we landed on this idea, for those of you catching up, uh, we looked at Cain's story and said, we are people living east of Eden, this territory that he goes to live in. We are uncertain of who we are, where we fit, and why our lives matter. Just get that in his speech. Today you are driving me from you, I will be hidden from your presence. It's a question of identity. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. It's a question of belonging, and, and whoever finds me will kill me. It's a, it's a question of purpose. What, what's the point? We are people living east of Eden, uncertain of who we are, where we fit, and why our lives matter. The writer Kara Powell breaks some of the big existential questions we ask down to three categories. There's identity, there is belonging, and there is purpose, all of those come under the umbrella of what it might look like to live a healthy life with and before God. They have these big questions, who am I? And we'll get to that next week. Where do I fit? Like, where's my group? Who do I belong to? And does my life matter? Jesus, we saw last week, invites Peter, one of his first followers, into this, this question of purpose. He invites him into a different type of of life. He says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. One of the things we might say, or or criticisms criticisms we might make of talking about things like identity, belonging, and purpose is, aren't those just like privileged questions? Aren't Aren't we supposed to be talking about food and water? There's a billion people that don't have enough food to eat. 700 million people don't have access to clean water. Those are tragedies, those are real absolute needs, and one of the things I love is being part of a community that gets to do its small part to help with some of those things. But what I find interesting is, yes, those are basic needs, like remember back in school, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those are the basics of food and water and shelter and things like that, but, but Peter has all those. This disciple Peter calls, this follower Peter calls, he has a boat. He can feed himself. Maybe he's eking out a living, but he can do that. He has a way to build shelter. He has a a small community of people, but something in the moment that Peter experiences Jesus' course, something calls him to risk all of those things in chase of something bigger, something more. Something says to him, no, this this is what I'm going to do. We have this place, this world where so many people live in ways that we might look at and say, wow, I I just, I don't understand how you can live that way with that little identity, that little belonging, that little purpose, and maybe some of us are those people too. The writer Eugene Peterson says, the puzzle is why so many people live live so badly, not so wickedly, but so inanely, not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There is little to admire and less to imitate in the people 
who are prominent. He, he kind of wrestles with this fact that for a huge section of society, it's not incredible wickedness that's on display. It's just, it's just kind of inane. It's just kind of something's missing. Maybe it's purpose, maybe it's belonging, maybe it's identity. And yet Jesus, in his promise, said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That doesn't sound like what the lion is experiencing. It doesn't sound inane. It doesn't sound meaningless. It sounds like he invites us into something more. So last week, this is where we landed. If you want to change the world, tell them a better story. Use words if you like. Jesus invites us to make his grand story our purpose with the idea that, that that's like a corporate thing. We, we get to join in that and you and I get to find our individual purpose within that. You are made to do something. There are giftings, there are things that can be stirred in you that you get to live out and, and maybe surprisingly so. We got to hear from Todd, one of our friends here at South who has been teaching kids for about 20 years now and how that has given him incredible purpose in his life. And this week we get to move from purpose to belonging. And so maybe just a, an honest question to start with, does belonging matter or maybe does community matter? Maybe I'll use those interchangeably at different times. Do you need, do I need people? Or is the truth that I'm actually fine by myself? I can actually just survive. So we're going to start somewhere sort of sociologically and then we're going to move into what Jesus says about it. But a couple of things, a couple of tension points to maybe wrestle with to start with. We have what you might call a homelessness crisis happening and, and you guys see it even if you have all sorts of different views on the why of it. So you drive down a street, you see it, you go to different major cities, you see it and, and you may think the cause is one thing, you may think the cause is another thing and yet we're aware of it. Simply there are not enough houses perhaps for everybody to have one and that causes problems. When I worked in, in Detroit, in North End Rosa Parks area, one of the poorest zip codes in Detroit and in America, we saw this. We saw all of these houses that couldn't now be lived in and we worked to gentrify them, to improve them. The tension we met is as we did that, the house prices went up and the rental prices went up and suddenly we had all of these conversations with people that we thought we were helping who were saying, I can no longer afford to live in this area now. I miss my old community. There's a whole bunch of tensions in some of these conversations about space and where you belong and where you get to stay. And then there's also a tension between the words lonely and alone. They are not necessarily synonyms. In fact, I would say they are rarely synonyms. We talked about solitude just a few weeks ago. Aloneness is very important. And, and there is somewhat of an irony that the time where you least want to be alone is perhaps the time where you most need to be alone. There's some process that happens with you and God in aloneness, in solitude, in silence. So in actual fact, we actually have to do that at different points. Lonely is a very different thing. I got an offer from Realtor.com, as many of you may have done, to buy a house on an island in Maine for $2.3 million. It had a lighthouse and everything that you could, you could live in. It's an island off the coast of a town of 240 people. It's about as alone as you can get. And for some of you, there's a, a temptation of, ooh, send me there. I remember complaining to the whole community once when, when my wife and kids went on vacation to see uh, her parents and left me by myself at home and, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, being alone in my house for a week? That's like a dream. Like, what, what are you complaining about? I crave that kind of 
aloneness. So, so only you can tell me whether that space seems like you would be lonely or, or whether it would just be healthy aloneness. For those of you that are tempted, just to kind of give you a second thought, I did just measure how close the nearest target was, knowing that's important to some of you, uh, and it's an hour and 20 minutes to get to target, so that may rule it out for some of you. you might, that's a deal breaker. Like, that's, like, that's my search on realtor.com, how close is target. Um, so, so just, you know, may not be an option for you. But somewhere there is a call to aloneness and not to loneliness. The writer Henry Thoreau said this, I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company even with the best is, is soon wearisome and dissipating. I love to be alone. I never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. Every time I speak to you guys now, I'm going to worry that you find me wearisome and dissipating. I've never even come across that word. The, the, there's that, 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 for some of us, solitude is deeply important. Shrek uh, in Shrek says this, they judge me before they even know me. That's why I'm better off alone. There's, there's an importance of aloneness, and then there's a difference between that and, and loneliness. And yet loneliness is a crisis too. Statistically, lonely people die sooner than people that have community. That's just a truth. Like it's loneliness has an effect on us. Some years ago, the writer Mag Malcolm Gladwell investigated the town of Rosetto in Pennsylvania. He was curious because a number of doctors had said they had patients from Rosetto and never under the age of 75 had males come with heart disease. And they couldn't understand it because the communities around lived the same way, they ate the same foods, and yet Rosetta was just different. People didn't get sick. They died of old age and nothing more. It was a mystery to these people, so they started to investigate. They investigated diet, as I said. They investigated some of the practices, the fitness practices, and no difference. The only thing that they could figure out was this, and this is all the people in Rosetto just hanging out, just so you know what Rosetto looks like. Uh, the only thing they could figure out was this. Rosettans visited one another, stopping to chat in Italian on the street, say, or cooking for one another in their backyards. The researchers saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof, and how much respect grandparents commanded. They went to mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and saw the unifying and calming effect of the church. They counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of just under 2,000 people. What they observed was community, and that made all the difference. People in this community lived long and healthy lives when they didn't in other places. Just on a sociological level, community belonging has value. Compare that to a, a quote from Anne Hathaway, the actress. Loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I am most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or somebody who will care for me. Doesn't that sound like what Cain says in Genesis chapter 4? My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He's talking about aspects of protection, of safety, of belonging, and she's talking about the same thing. There is this deep need in us to find community. You might say this as a, as a thesis. We are better in community and we need better community. And for some of you already, there is a tension of how you experience church, how you experience family, how you experience all of those different things and your only loneliness 
is sort of flagged or raised up within you in the midst of these questions. We recognize the need for community, and yet we often see that we don't have it. Why? What gets in the way? And so we're going to tap into a narrative of Jesus and, and this moment where he encounters this person by a well in a, in a place called Samaria and just wrestle with some of the things that come out around community. But, but first, this is what I would suggest we experience as a fear in terms of community. Fear one, the fear of being exposed leads us to retreat from genuine community. The fear of being exposed leads us to retreat, retreat from genuine community. John chapter four, verse one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went once more to Galilee. Jesus has done most of his work, his ministry, his teaching, his healing in this place called Judea. Now he's moving on somewhere else and that takes a long journey around usually a particular geographical area. A good Jewish person would walk around a town called Samaria. They wouldn't go through it or a place called Samaria. They would avoid it because they didn't like Samarians. So here we go. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He had to do something that most Jewish people that, that had any respect for holiness would avoid doing. And while doing that, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. A perfectly ordinary thing to do. But it was about noon. A perfectly unordinary time to get water. Nobody got water at noon. It's just unheard of. Why would you go in the heat of the day? A little while ago, some lovely people at South took me out to play golf, and, and we got there at one o'clock in the afternoon, and it was like 100 degrees, and I was like, nobody, no Englishman should be playing golf in this weather. You should be inside, sat in the shade, moaning about how much it rains the rest of the time. That's what you do if you're English. And, and in this place, in this culture, well, you didn't go get water at noon. You went when it was cool. You went early in the morning or late in the afternoon. And yet, as Jesus is sat there, a Samaritan wo woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples have gone into the town to buy food. Right now, are they talking about community? Are they talking about relationship? No, they're, they're talking about Maslow. They're talking about food. They're talking about water, they're talking about basic sustenance. Right now, at this point, it is completely surface level. It is, I am thirsty, would you give me some water? Although, delightfully within this text, there's a whole sub-conversation going on that's a mystery to people like you and I, because in the Old Testament, this old Jewish Bible, everyone that we read about story-wise meets their husband or wife at a well, though that's just the common story. So, so for a first century reader, there's like, wait, is this like a meet cute? Is this like a romance novel? What's going on here? There's a weirdness to this story as you encounter it, especially as this very well, one of the great Jewish patriarchs met his wife at. So a whole bunch of stuff there that we don't have time to get into. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus doesn't reference the weirdness of the time. 
doesn't engage with the fact that why are you here? Why are you here when none of the other women are here? Why are you by yourself? He'll get there in the end, but right now, it's still, it's just on that surface level. And she wants to know, how are you asking me for a drink? How are you asking me for sustenance? We're not supposed to associate, and John, this writer, will constantly give us these little hints in case we're not familiar with the culture. Just so you know, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The conversation started on basic needs, and it's now moved to the spiritual thing, but, but to something deep, some kind of longing that she has that maybe she's not aware of. There is something there beyond just bread and water and fish. It's the same as Peter in that invite to Peter. Somewhere lurking, there is some aspect of there's got to be more to life than this. She experiences loneliness. She doesn't experience aloneness. She is lonely because of some backstory that we'll get to eventually. There is some social thing that means that she collects water at noon when everyone else collects water in the morning. She is separate. She can't pretend because everybody knows her. And yet we experience some of those same experiences that she has. We just happen to live in a society that maybe we get to pretend. Maybe we get to cover up. Maybe as we get to, in a second, we get to mask just a little bit. But her experience is not unique. This is River Dave, a guy that has a last name, but I couldn't figure it out. He has been a hermit in North Carolina for about 37 years, just found himself a plot of land, started building, just pulled back from society, and yet starts to experience some of the loss of community. And, and in an interview that I, I read, this is what he says. Maybe the things I've been trying to avoid are the things I really need in life. I grew up never being hugged or kissed or any close contact. I had somebody ask me once about my wife, did you really love her? The question kind of shocked me for a second. I, I've never loved anyone in my life. And I shocked myself because I hadn't realized that. And that's why I was a hermit, there was a withdrawal from community just because of safety, some kind of sense of I have to protect myself or everybody's talking about me or all of those different narratives that we might use. There's a word, a term that I heard used for the first time just yesterday, accusicide. It's the thing we do to ourselves where we tell ourselves the narratives everybody else must be spinning about us, everybody else must be saying about us. And, and on one hand, they just cause us to retreat. We leave community altogether, we get out, we can't enter into it. Or perhaps on another hand, we find communities where we get to hide. I, I read a fascinating story about a theater in New York that had turned itself into a full immersion theater. You could go and you could break the fourth wall, you could interact with the characters. They would talk to you and you could talk back. And one person who went regularly confessed to spending $17,000 on tickets over a couple of years. He'd found community that he could pay for. He'd found community where he could quite physically wear a mask to hide his face and he could interact in a completely different way, in a way that wasn't really him, that freed him up to enter into something different. 
$17,000 to buy the community he was really deeply longing for. Somewhere this woman at the well experiences the same isolation that that man experiences, that River Dave experiences. There is this longing, craving, and yet sometimes the story is that we just, I just can't get there. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you've been there and it's hurt too much before and to try again seems impossible. Maybe there's a perception about how people see you, how people receive you. I just I can't be there in that space. Jesus uses this fascinating word regularly. He calls, it, uh, he calls people hypocrites or hypocrite in Greek. The language is like a performer acting under a mask. Sometimes it's people like the Pharisees that he talks to regularly, people trying to cover up, people trying to pretend to deceive people. And yet I wonder if there's a whole bunch of us that were not pretending because we want to deceive people, we're more holy than we are, we're just trying to hide the brokenness that lurks just under the surface. The only way we feel comfortable is appearing with some kind of mask, physical or not. William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And I would suggest most of us in the room know what it is to play to a crowd, to pretend. In the midst of that, Jesus' invitation to her, and I would suggest to us, is to radically accepting community. Now let me just pause on that word accepting because I don't mean the accepting that necessarily says just stay as you are, that's okay. Jesus, interestingly, is always about transformation. He always provides places for transformation. Yet, yet what we'll see, I suggest, with this woman at the well is the only thing that is required of her to enter community is honesty. The only thing that is required is honesty. This is the story as it continues. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She still thinks at this point he's talking about physical water. Where could you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Her response is, whatever it is that you have, I'm not sure I understand all the terms you're using. I'm not even sure that I understand the basic concept, but something about your conversation, Jesus has said, you have something that I deeply need. It's something that I deeply long for. And then this is where he makes his request of her. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five hus had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. We might ask that question, is it really quite true? Is Jesus been particularly generous here? I would suggest she particularly goes out to deceive him, understandably perhaps, but this seems like there's this intention to hide some of the truth from Jesus. Jesus, who knows it anyway, will graciously bring it to the service because entering into this community does at least acknowledge and know that is the story, that is where I have been and that is where the brokenness lies. It's possible we are way too hard on this woman. It's possible that she had five husbands, all of whom have passed away there is some ambiguity here and yet there is a story that that you can clearly see why she's at the, the well at noon and why she's not there in the morning 
and why no one wants her in community. Jesus' gracious offer to her is relationship with him and the broader community simply based on her honest assessment of, I desperately need this living water, Jesus. I have no way of getting it, and I am deeply, I am deeply thirsty. Jesus offers genuine accepting community in the midst of our own suspicions about ourselves and of others. Fear number two, our fear of the other leads us to people just like us. We look for community in people that will mirror our understanding of different aspects of life, understanding our mirror, under, mirror our understanding perhaps of politics, of different stances on different things. Have you noticed what it is to walk into a group and, and find people who express the same tendencies as you? And, and then you find that I actually like those people an awful lot. And maybe correspondingly, you get into a group and find that people have different understandings, different opinions, and, and automatically tension begins to arise. And perhaps you've noticed that that expands or is even more noticeable when it's in an online community where you don't even have to pretend to be civil. There is a way that we look for people that look like us. And if we're honest, at times we avoid people that don't look like us. That, that's not a new conversation. Look where this conversation, this, this dialogue with Jesus goes next. He's offered her something. He's offered her some kind of spiritual experience. He's offered her this living water, and she has an objection still to make. Before she goes and finds her not-quite-husband to bring him to Jesus too. This is her objection. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. You've, you've pegged me, Jesus. You've got me spot on. You have revealed a truth in me is essentially what she's saying. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Somewhere the conversation is, Jesus, you dealt with me pretty easily, but I'm pretty easy to deal with. What about this bigger conversation? Can you deal with that? Can you deal with Jews versus Samaritans? Can you deal with the fact that the Jewish people walk around us in a big semicircle to avoid our towns? Can you deal with this conflict that's been going on for hundreds of years? Can you deal with Republican versus Democrat Jesus? Can you deal with the big conversations that we don't really want to have? Can you, can you bring healing to that thing? Can you fix that? What is interesting about the, the, the communities that Jesus gathered is his answer seems to be yes, but perhaps not in the way that you think. I would suggest that Jesus invites us into provocatively diverse communities. His answer to the woman is pretty simple. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's simply, yes, I'm going to heal these things. I'm going to mend all of the existential angst in the world. But, but I'm actually more intrigued, not just by this response, but by the type of people he pulls into his community and to why he does it. This is the list of his 12 followers. If you're like me, you tend to skip over lists like this when you read the text. You're like, I'm just moving on to the next narrative chunk. But the names are sometimes important as they are here. This is a guy called Matthew writing, and he's also listed in the list of followers. Look what we see here. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
You couldn't get two more different people than Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. They are opposite ends of the spectrum. There is on one hand uh, the tax collector Matthew who is working for Rome, who is gathering income from people like Peter, hardworking fishermen just trying to survive. And on the other hand, you've got, uh, you've got Simon the zealot who's gathering people, gathering swords, gathering weapons. So one day there'll be enough of them to, to rise up and overthrow the Romans. They have two completely different solutions to the current problem. Matthew is, if you can't beat them, just join them. Find a way to, to get involved in what they're doing. And, and on the other hand, you've got Simon who's like, no, we're, we're going to war with these people. In the world of the day, they are the extreme left and they are the extreme right. They are doing completely different things. And yet Jesus calls both of them calls both of them into his community, will transform both of them, will lead both of them to such a point where they say the other thing, it pales in comparison to Jesus, this grand story that you have pulled me into. Jesus takes people that are diametrically opposed to each other and says not only will you get on with each other, you'll grow to love each other. I would love us to be that kind of community, and I suspect that a lot of you long for that too. In this community, we have people who are both unashamedly right and unashamedly left. I have had in this community, after a sermon, have had people call me and tell me that I need to acknowledge that Donald J. Trump is the best president for Christians ever in America, and I have had people on the same week call me and tell me that I need to acknowledge that the Republicans are now the party of lies and the Democrats are the party of truth, and both of those have sat together in the same week, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the fact that I can get both of those phone calls. I actually love that, but here's where I would love it to go in reality, because I think there's a, a temptation here. I think on one hand, the temptation is to say, we have to be a community where everybody is left, or maybe you say progressive. The other temptation is to say that we have to be a community where everybody is right, or you might say conservative. And I would say neither of those are good options, but I think there's a third option we sometimes choose that's actually maybe a little easier, but just as pernicious. The other option is to say, we don't talk about that stuff at all. We just keep it all under wraps. And maybe once every four years, we get to an election cycle where we just can't avoid it. And then we have to say something. But for the most part, we're gonna shove it all under the table and just pretend it doesn't exist. And yet I think we have to talk about it. And we have to find ways to talk about it well. And we have to learn that like, like Jesus' community, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot can actually coexist in the same space can be loved by the same God, can be transformed by the same message, and can actually learn to love and honor each other in a particular way. That seems to be the kind of community Jesus dreamt of, a community where these people could realize in his grand story, these things, these opposites, they didn't matter anywhere compared to that great story he was pulling them into. Somewhere there's a healthy conversation to be had a way that we can do that together. One of the things that really helped me was growing up, I, I, I was in a moment where I really longed to share my new Christian faith that I'd found at, at 18, 19 years old, and I remember a conversation I had with a guy I went to school with who was Sikh. And in the midst of that, we were chatting away, and I kind of said at the end, you know, it was a fun conversation, but we probably don't need to have it again, because you're not gonna convert me to being a Sikh, and I don't think I'm gonna convert you to following Jesus. 
he kind of looked at me with this strange look. And he was like, why would I want you to be a Sikh? And I kind of said, well, I, I just assumed that was the premise of the conversation. I would love you to follow Jesus. I, I just assumed this is what you wanted for me too. And, and, and he said, no, it would be really strange if you were a Sikh. You're not a Sikh. You weren't born where I was born. You haven't experienced what I have experienced. Now, somewhere, interestingly, as followers of Jesus, we feel called to share this story that's good and right and proper. But somewhere, it opened me up to the conversation that there could be conversations that didn't require the other person to change. Somewhere there could be conversations where we would enjoy each other's experiences, where we would listen to each other and we would actually gain something from that. Somewhere it feels like we've lost that art and Jesus takes this community of people and he never says to Simon, to Matthew the tax collector, you are completely in the wrong and Simon is right. And he never says vice versa, the right to Scott Saul says this, unless a human system is fully and consistently centered on God, Jesus will have things to affirm and things to critique about that system. Jesus calls us all to honor him and choose him first. And nothing, it seems, comes second place. I do not get to be a British Christian. I get to be a Christian that is British. There is nothing that comes first in that order of sentences. It seems that Jesus will bow to nobody else or no other thing in your life. Fear number three, our fear of losing our autonomy shapes fractured community. Our fear of losing our autonomy shapes fractured community. We all of us, each of us have a tendency to wanting to get our own way. It seems that somewhere Jesus thinks that real community happens when we get to surrender some of that autonomy for the wonder of this community. On the one hand, this isn't capitalism. This isn't just everybody gets to do what they want. And it's not socialism. It's not just you only matter for the thing itself, for the system. It's something more than that. It's something particularly wonderful. Jesus models this first when he washes his disciples' feet. In John 13, we read, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Read that first sentence again. Jesus knew that he was supreme to everything else. Jesus knew that he had authority, that he was in charge, and that enabled him to do what? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Because he knows who he is, Jesus is able to get down on his knees and wash the feet of his disciples, of his followers. There was something about his knowledge of who he is that allows him to do that. It seems when you know who you are, you are able to do whatever you are supposed to do in a particular moment. And he tells them this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus' invitation into community is this. Jesus invites us into intentionally sacrificial communities. He invites us into communities that involve laying down personal preference because of the love of a community. It involves respecting, loving, and valuing the community and the people in it so much that you can serve in whatever way you feel called or you are asked to serve. And this is what he says in John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. One, I love the fact that for you and I who follow Jesus, 
Jesus prayed for us specifically. He prayed that we would be able to follow him as these first disciples followed him. He, that was his longing for you and I. Just as you are in me and I am in you, his longing is somewhere that ref- relationship, what it reflects is his relationship with his father. So for those of you that enjoy theology, think of that Trinitarian relationship, that perfect relationship of relating, respecting, and partnering with another, of not competition, but simply being together in harmonious existence. He says, my longing for the church is that's what it looks like. You look like us. I often don't understand anything but win-lose scenarios. I win you lose. I often don't understand anything but authority structure. I am here and you are here. And yet this relationship doesn't look like that. And that's what Jesus says the church should look like. It reminds me of, a, of an experience that I've actually used in occasionally at weddings, a story I've told at weddings. It's a story of me dancing, which is a thing that none of you should ever have to see. I'm not by any means a good dancer. I certainly don't tango well, but my wife and I got to go and tango for an anniversary some years back. And we went off with a bunch of trepidation, a bunch of I'm not sure what I'm doing and all of those different things to receive a lesson. And in the midst of receiving that lesson, I got this incredible piece of news right before we started. The instructor gathered us all together and said this, in tango, the man is always in charge. Entangled, the man is always in charge. And in that moment, someone had finally told me I was in charge. <laughs> I was like, this is incredible. Like, I've, uh, I've been married for a few years now, and it took someone else to come and tell me that. I'm like, thank you. Uh, and so we got to dancing, and, and Laura got to dance with uh, this 71-year-old guy who just a great gent who'd clearly been doing tango since tango was invented. He knew his stuff, and, and I danced with the, uh, the studio owner's daughter, and both of those things were a little weird given it was our anniversary and we actually went to dance together, but, but I still remember the phrases that we used. In the midst of that, uh, Laura was told by this, this wonderful old guy, she said, he said to her, if I step on your feet, it's your fault for putting my feet where, your feet where I wanted my feet to be. You're, you're to blame. When it goes wrong, it's you. And I was told by the person I was dancing with, just push me where you want me to go. Just push me where you want me to go. And that's how tango works. It's a structure of the man is in charge, and, and that's the rule. And yet, there was this moment where the two experts danced together. And we watched something that wasn't about who was in charge. And we watched something that wasn't about authority. We actually watched two people that just moved together and what they created was incredible and beautiful. When we talk about things like Trinity and authority, I would suggest that we are the people that are most interested in that conversation. What we see between Jesus and his father is harmonious and beautiful and it's so much more like a dance than anything else. And he says the church, it should mirror that. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. This is what gets me here. Last week we talked about purpose and we talked about church 
and we talked about community, and we talked about the fact that the reason there are hospitals is because of the church. The, the reason there are schools is because of the church. The reason that because the, all these things, these social things that we think and take for granted, it, it was the church. It, it came from these Jesus communities. It came from their purpose that they were given to, to help transform this world. And then what Jesus says is this, the moment you don't love each other, all of that falls apart. The moment there isn't love, it doesn't mean anything. The moment that you can't interact in that healthy way, you can't live that dance, it doesn't matter. You can build all the hospitals you want, you can do all of the things you want, and in the moment that you can't center it in love, it's pointless. It's done. It's ruined. It's spoiled. In that moment, it doesn't matter anymore. In that moment, he says, the only way that they're going to know you sent me is, is love. I have loved them even as you have loved me. Then the world will know that you sent me. That is the premise. That's the thing. That's the heartbeat of community. There is this wonderful idea that the best way that formation and growing like Jesus happens is in community, and yet it has to be centered in this. It's a giving of yourself, a choosing of community over you, of choosing another over yourself, and that is what Jesus invites us into. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.